That was overly kind. <laughs> uh, I love Luke. I've learned a ton from Luke. Um, gracious. My name's Jamie. This is my family. We are going to Dollywood today. <laughs> They've never been. Um, I think we went to Dollywood three children ago. I think we had one child at the time. So um, an absolute joy uh, and privilege to be here today. Um, let's talk about Jesus. If you got your devices or your Bible or whatever it is, pull that out. Mark chapter 9. Uh, we're going to start with verse 30. Uh, we're going to go through 41. Uh, John was leading us worship just a minute ago, and he mentioned in his prayer, talking about Jesus, uh, kind of the kingdom flip, how Jesus came to not to be served, but to serve. Um, and I think that's going to dovetail with where uh, we're going today. Pretty interesting. The Lord just laid that on, on our, my heart uh, to preach. Um, and so we're going to jump in. So when you got your finger there, here's a question. What do you want to be when you grow up? That was a question we all had, right? Um, when you were a kid, um, my youngest is seven. Uh, I did the, the commencement speech at her kindergarten graduation recently. That's a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you graduate kindergarten. And on the program that was handed out to all the parents where they have their regalia on and the hat and the robe and all that was a picture of each kid. And under their, their picture, there was their name and then what they wanted to be when they grew up. And there were policemen, firemen, doctors, teachers. Uh, there was one ninja, and uh, there was a Spider-Man, right? Once somebody wanted to be Spider-Man. And so this, why? Why, why is that? Because they want to be great. Kids want to be awesome. They want to be great. They want to matter. They want to change the world. They want to help people. They want to make a difference. We got the new Spider-Man movie coming out. We haven't seen it yet. Far from home, right? Spider-Man is an amazing character. My, my oldest daughter is a bit of a cynic when it comes to Marvel movies, though. Um, she says they're very boring. They're predictable. Uh, they're all the same, right? Because you have this end-of-the-world cataclysmic event. Somebody gets some superhero strength, and somehow they, at the last minute, save the day. And she says it's boring. But they make millions and millions, billions of dollars. Why? Because we love that narrative. We love the idea of desiring to be great like that, right? And this desire for greatness, let's connect to the gospel. The desire to be great is from God. It's just been warped. It's been tainted. It's been distorted and bent by sin right in the garden. It went from a desire to be great to a desire to be thought of as great. You see the difference? There's a nuance there, but there's a difference between being thought of as great and wanting to be great. And we're going to see that. There's, it went from a desire uh, to serve the weak, to serve humanity, to save humanity, uh, to being served by humanity, or being served by the weak. And so that's the tension that we live in with this childlike desire to do something that matters with our lives, that's been warped by, by this desire for fame or money or status or, or reputation or beauty, whatever. It's to build our own kingdom. Is to be in charge of our own kingdom rather than God's. And so what do we do? So our answer today comes from Jesus in this passage in Mark 9. So we got three points. I don't know if Luke does points or not. Our people need, we need points. I need to know where I am in this thing. Um, so number one is greatness redefined. And we're just going to follow the Bible story right down. Boom, boom, boom. All right. Because um, the Bible does a great job of outlining that for us. Um, great, greatness redefined. Number two, humble serving of others. 
And number three, humble celebration of others. So we've got greatness that's going to be redefined. We've got humble serving of others and then humble celebration of others. All right, let's jump in. Look at verse 30. Uh, You should have your finger ready to scroll. You're not ready at all. Come on. All right, let's go. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. That's my oldest. It's okay. She's fine. Um, they went on there and passed. This is Jesus and the disciples, and they're pass, passing, passing through Galilee. It says, he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. 32, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. All right, so Jesus is out in the countryside. He's teaching on the kingdom. He's been doing this for a while, if you've been reading through the uh, entire gospel of Mark. And Jesus right here is talking about the apex of the Bible, the very top part of it. And, And Mark actually, he mentions what the teaching of Jesus is. Usually Mark just says, and he was teaching. And we assume that it was just talking about the gospel. But here he says he he taught them the kingdom and he tells us what it was full of, right? And, and so when he says, here's what he was teaching, that the Son of Man is going to come and he was going to die uh, and they were going to kill him and he's going to rise, that, that means it's really important. And so Jesus is spelling out the gospel here. It's the second of three times that he does that in the book of Mark. Now, this is why Jesus came. This is how we are brought back into a right relationship with God that was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, when they disobeyed God. This is the gospel, that God came in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and we should have lived that perfect life. We did not. We sinned, and he suffered at the hands of men that he created, ultimately laying down his life, paying the great debt of our sin that we could not pay, and then God raises him from the dead. And so this is not registering still with the disciples. They're hearing it. They've declared him as the Messiah. They're saying it with their mouths. They're confessing it with their mouths. They have not yet believed it in their hearts. All right, they're not walking it. You've got a stated belief. Here's what we believe. And then you've got your actual belief. And your actual belief is always revealed in how you behave, how you act, what you do, how, how, how you are. And so there's this chasm between your stated belief and your actual belief. And there's where the fight of faith happens. And they're not there yet. Jesus is so patient <laughs> with them. I'm like, don't, don't, don't point your finger at the disciples. We, we are them. They are us, right? And so they just haven't registered that yet. They're still looking. They don't have a category for this kind of Messiah that's going to come and die. They're still waiting for a political leader. They're waiting for a military leader that's going to come, and they're going to take back Rome. They're going to raise, the, the people are going to rise up, and they're going to take back the millennial kingdom just like David had with them, and they're so excited about this. Jesus is going to be a rebel rouser. He's bringing revolution, and they don't understand why he's talking about dying, and it's just not. There's a disconnect. You don't save humanity like that. Everybody knows that. You don't come to die. It doesn't make any sense. When leaders die, so, do, so does the revolution. So does the movement. That's how you secure a defeat, not a victory, right? And so there is, they're like us. We don't, they don't get it yet. But Jesus, ironically, what he has done in, in telling them this has just redefined greatness. He redefined greatness by sacrifice, by lowering some, himself for the sake of another, for God's glory and for man's redemption. Now, watch what Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, does here, if you got, if you got your device, if you got your Bible. All right? I, I lo- he's brilliant. So here's what he does. Keep reading, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And this is Jesus talking to the disciples. But they kept silent, 
For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now, remember in the original text, there was no verse numbers, there was no breaks, there was no paragraphs, there was no headings, right? And so these two passages, the first one we just read and the second one, are right next to each other, and they are awkwardly just placed right next to each other. It's like you're just trying, you're reading, you're like, wait, this is, is this one story? I don't, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. One minute Jesus is talking about his sacrifice in verse 31, and the next Mark's tell, Mark tells us about uh, disciples arguing about their greatness. You see what Mark's doing? He's putting Jesus' idea of greatness right next to the disciples' idea of greatness. And he's saying, these are not, these are not the same. And then he gives an, an object illustration. See, the 12 want to be great. The disciples want to be great, just like the children do in the class that I was in, just like we want to be great. We want to matter. But what they mean is something different than what Jesus means, and they're learning that. And that's why he stops. He, says, he sits down and he, he says he teaches. That's what sitting down is. He's, he's teaching. See, there's a difference between holy ambition and selfish ambition. And the disciples assume that following Jesus, the Messiah, that's going to bring them uh, freedom from the oppression of Rome, that this is going to lead to privilege and recognition and exclusivity. They're going to be somebody. They're going to be with the guy that brought freedom. And what they don't realize is that Jesus is talking about suffering and humility. And at first, they're silent because of their ignorance in verse 32. They're silent because they didn't understand. What is Jesus talking about? I don't understand. They were silent. And now, verse 34, they're silent because they know that Jesus wouldn't approve of their arrogance. So we've got ignorance and arrogance that are just on display right here. Just think about Peter, James, and John. Right? They had just seen, if you read a little earlier, they had just seen the transfiguration where Jesus glowed this radiant light. And so they were the only ones with him. They got to see uh, Elijah. They got to see Moses. They got to see Jesus uh, just glowing with this trans, trans, like splendid glory. And then they walked down. And then they're feeling a little bit more special, a little bit more entitled. We're in. We're with Jesus. We're the special ones. And in fact, in Luke's gospel, the next story that, that Mark doesn't record, uh, James and John are wanting to call fire down on people because they're inhospitable in the village. That's, that's, that's kind of where they're feeling. Hey, Jesus, you want to just call down fire because they didn't let us stay with them, you know? I'm like, so they're, they're feeling it. They're pretty important. Later, they ask to sit on the right and the left hand side of, of Jesus and help him rule. And so the other disciples are probably pushing back and going, hey, look, we were chosen too. He got us too. It's not just Peter, James, and John. Y'all aren't the only special. And there's this infighting and this indignation happening. And they're unwilling to uh, admit their ignorance, their arrogance. And thus, they display that they don't understand glory and greatness at all. And here's what's interesting. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. <laughs> he doesn't say, you're wrong. I would expect that. He takes a moment to teach them. And he doesn't say, you shouldn't desire greatness. He's about to teach them what greatness really is, and that it comes from serving others and not yourself, that desiring greatness is not wrong. Desiring to make a difference, desiring for your lives to matter is not wrong. It just needs to be redefined. It must look different. It must look like Jesus' definition of greatness and not what we think greatness is. So that's greatness redefined. Number two, humble serving of others. So there's this 
Point two and point three, humble serving of others is those that may seem below us and then those that may seem above us. How do we react in that? So Jesus has an object lesson for understanding greatness in the kingdom, this upside-down view of the kingdom of God. In verse 36, he embraces a child. And I know you're thinking, oh, big deal. You know, we got, I've got four of those here. <laughs> I can embrace any one of them at any point. Don't, yeah, but we're not going to do that. Now, from this picture, what we learn is how we come to Jesus and how we are to receive others like Jesus does. But in the first century, children were not viewed, and many of you probably know that. They weren't viewed like they are now. We have this romanticized view of children. They're innocent, and, and they, they picture wonder and hope and faith and, and all these things, and, but not in this time period. Um, I, like Luke said, I've, I've been to Nepal and the Himalayas several times, and we'll, we'll walk through villages. And I, I went through a village one time back in 2012, and I was with, uh, this was through the village where the organization that we worked with found a child that was chained at the neck and left in the barn with animals because the family couldn't afford to, to feed him anymore. So he left him with the animals, and they rescued him. And that really, I just, that just kind of stuck with me to, to see that the lack of dignity, the lack of value of life, that, that we would just chain a, a five-year-old around the neck and, and leave them in the barn with the animals. And that, that's kind of the, the viewpoint that's going on. They don't even name their children there until they're five years old because there's a 50% mortality rate high in the Himalayas. Children were at the bottom of the pile of society. They were with slaves and Gentiles. They represented the least of these, the weak, the dirty, the undesirable, the helpless, the people that don't matter to culture, the people that have nothing to offer you back. They'll just take. So who in our culture comes to your mind when you think like that? The person that society doesn't value and that doesn't bring value to society. The unborn child by an unwanted mother a single parent, the disabled, an immigrant, a homeless guy holding a sign. Jesus says, serve these people. So verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus takes an example, the lowest of society, into his arms, into his arms, and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, there's no status consciousness in the kingdom of God. Since our identity is not based on what we do, what we have, where we come from, but it's based on Jesus and his work on the cross, we're all equally valuable as humans. We are that child. And we're to welcome others like Jesus embraces that child. But for the grace of God, we're all in the same boat. I mean, that's the Christian view. Dignity is derived from God, not from the world, not from what you earn. And we've got to learn how to live like this, to see people like Jesus did. I uh, think of Henry Nouwen, or Henri Nouwen, <laughs> however you, how you say his name. I read several of his books, but he was uh, a very successful professor he had, he had taught at Yale, he had taught at Harvard, written a bunch of books, top of his field, yet he found something lacking in his life. 
He realized that he had fallen into this trap of thinking that joy and fulfillment would come through climbing the successful, the ladder of success, right? And so at the height of his career, he just quit. And he moved to a, a community called the Arch. It was a, a, a community where people with and without intellectual disabilities lived together. They worked together. They would play together. Um, they would help one another, serve one another. And so he, 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 he would have to serve people because they literally could not dress themselves. They literally needed help feeding themselves. He chose to, to live among this community to serve others that had to be served. And he says that's where he learned truly how to serve. To serve because you love, not because the job is required. Not because it's, it's somebody's got to do it, right? It's, oh my goodness, this is a person made in the image of God, and here's an opportunity for me to, to hand a cup of water, like Jesus says, to, as you serve the least of these, so you do that to me, me, my brethren. My brothers, you do that to me. And to serve because we love. And I say, how much does the church need to learn that? How much do I need to learn that? To get this principle that, that there really is nobody be- below us. We would never say that out loud. I don't know if y'all's culture is like ours is in, in Alabama, but we know the right things to say. We know the right fa- uh, mask to wear. We know we have, we're very polite. We have Southern hospitality. We have all of that, right? But in our hearts sometimes, we think, well, that's a little below me. But that's how Jesus approaches us. It's the gospel that while we were yet sinners, sinners... And enemies of the cross and children of wrath, he came after us. He, he, he ran into the muck and the mire that we had earned for ourselves. And he came after us and he, he rescues us and says, hey, do the same. We were the lowly, but he came to us. And therefore, we were to do the same. And so Jesus is constantly with the poor, constantly with outcasts in the lowest society. And he says, you want to be great? <laughs> Flip the kingdom and serve. Do this, follow me. This is how you came to me and how others will come to me. Receive them as I do. See, greatness is not found in privilege, exclusion, status, influence, but through humility. That's the door. And that's where reward and joy reside. And so there's where we don't believe that. We think, yes, we should do that. That's our duty. That's a Christian. That's what a good person does. A good person lays down and he, he sacrifices for, and Jesus is saying, for joy. And that's where we, I think we miss that part, that little piece. Because it flips the idea of greatness on its head, and it flips the idea of reward on its head. Listen, here's Philippians 2. I'll read you uh, verses 5 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ." Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know those verses. And so, okay, greatness redefined comes through the doorway of humility. It looks like welcoming and it looks like serving those who would be expected to serve us. And serving looks like time and attention and care and embracing, asking questions, meeting needs. It may involve giving money, but it's certainly not limited to that. And we may think we're servants. Do you think you're a servant? If I were to ask you, and it was just you and me, we were knee to knee, eye to eye. And I'd say, do you think you're a servant? You'd say, yeah, probably, for the most part. There's some days. 
But I'll tell you this, you don't know how you feel about being a servant until somebody treats you like one when you don't ask them to. That's when you know, <laughs> you know what you feel about being a servant, when somebody just kind of assumes and treats you that way. Um, before I became a full-time pastor, uh, I, and I still am a, a physical therapist, and so I, I go to people's homes, uh, which is something I said I'd never do, but because of the flexibility for being an elder to church and all that, it was really helpful. And so I go to people's homes for the last 15 years or so, and I do PT, total knee surgeries, total hips, uh, motor vehicle accidents, stroke, all, all those kind of things. I'm helping people. I love to help people. And I had this uh, one lady, Miss Bessie, and she was at the time 94 years old, living alone, still wanted to do everything herself, I thought, when I, when I got in the door. Um, and the next thing you know, we got to be friends. I was helping her with her knees. She was getting up and down. She was, you know, physically she was moving fine. But the next thing you know, she was, hey, could you bring me, uh, you know, a spoon from the kitchen? Okay, yes, ma'am. I'll get up and get a spoon in the kitchen. Uh, could you bring me this? Hey, could you take the garbage out? Okay, I think we just escalated. You know, <laughs> we uh, okay. Yeah, I can do that. I mean, you're 94. Yes, I can. I can help you with that. Absolutely. I've got plenty of time to get all my other patients done. Hey, uh, when you go into the bathroom, would you mind scrubbing that toilet a little bit? And I found myself not no kidding. I'm like, what? I'm actually scrubbing this lady's toilet. What in the world? And I was doing these things, you know, and I would see her three times a week for four weeks, and, and then I'd see her multiple times because of how Medicare works during the year. So we built this real rapport. Uh, even my, my missional community, y'all, small group, I don't know what y'all have here. But anyway, we have a small, smaller groups of people uh, that meet and serve the community. And so we would take our group over there, cut our yard, we, you know, we'd, we'd paint some things, we'd fix stuff in the house because, you know, if you're 94 and you're living by yourself, things just kind of fall into disrepair. And so we were out there a bunch. And then, then she just started kind of ordering me around. And then all of a sudden, my service attitude, my servant's heart disappeared. Right? I, 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 didn't, I didn't really like it. I liked it when I was getting recognized for lowering myself. As long as you're patting me on the back, I'll serve you all day long. I know how my personality works. I get energy from being recognized. I'm a diamond in the rough, baby. Right? I mean, if you, if you only knew how good it was to be married to me, you know, that kind of, I serve, I serve, I serve. I will die serving as long as you recognize me and say, man, what a good servant. That's not really serving. That's really selfish. Because what I realized that when I, when I didn't get the credit, I didn't like the fact that she was treating me like a servant, which means it exposed my heart, let me know I really wasn't a servant, I really wasn't serving her. Guess who I was serving? I was serving me. I felt better about myself when I did something I thought Jesus said to do so that he would feel better than now I'm finally approved by God. Now I'm approved by me. We're good as long as I'm still dancing, as long as I can keep, keep we call it keep the hug, keep the hug, keep the acceptance. And Jesus says when we come to serve, the hurting and the weak and the lowest among us in reality, we're serving him. And so the, the joy is to serve Jesus and to serve others, whether you get paid back or not, and learning what that really looks like, and to see that there is joy that comes from Jesus in it. In Matthew 25, 40, when, when he talks about serving him, so I'm the one who sent him, the least of these my brethren, even if you offer a cup of water, right? Wow. We're ministering to Christ. But wait, it doesn't stop there. I'm about done. Third point, humble celebration of others. Look at verses 38 through 41. And John said to him, oh, we get picked up. There's John. It's not just them now. We're getting John. 
Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him, but because he was not following us. Now, Mark singles out John here. The disciples are still kind of acting in arrogance. And when we read that verse, we probably would expect to read verse 38. What do you think, what do you, think you would expect it to read? Because he was not following you. <laughs> Don't you think that should say you, Jesus, rather than us? I, I just found that was interesting. Um, it says us. And then they're trying to stop this guy for doing, if you read the last story, help my unbelief. God, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief about it. The guy was, was trying to get a demon cast out of his son. And the disciples couldn't do it. And so Jesus said, this one only comes out by, through prayer, right? And so, like, we couldn't cast it out. Jesus had to cast it out. Why didn't that work for us? Now, next story down, shift after the transfiguration. Um, you don't need to be casting demons out of people. <laughs> You're mad about it because you couldn't do it. What you so mad about? You're not performing well enough? You're not who you, as, as high as you thought? Do you understand what's happening here? You think they'd be glad to see this, but they're not. They're mad about it. <laughs> He's not following us. How, who does he think he is? See, Jesus doesn't rebuke this time either. He doesn't rebuke them. He just simply says, don't stop him. For, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. The disciples' jealousy and envy is kicking in. This guy is succeeding where they're failing. And so instead of celebrating the kingdom, celebrating the fact that the kingdom is advancing, demons are being cast out, that's wonderful, that, that's awesome. They're like, no, no, he's not with us. He's not doing it our way. <laughs> Shut him down. So if the last point was how we serve those that seem lower than us, this one is how do we respond those, to those that seem above us, that are doing better than us? Because there's always somebody better than you. Whatever you do, if you're at the top of your field, there's going to be somebody, all your goals, all your records are going to be eclipsed. Your beauty is going to fade. Your speed is going to diminish if you're an athlete. And you're always going to compare yourself to somebody who's a little bit better, a little smarter, a little more beautiful, makes a little bit more money, has a few more letters behind their name. Can you celebrate others in your field, whatever that may be, who excel a shade or two more than you do? Can you do that? Somebody got a promotion, you didn't get a promotion. What about a mom win, looking at Facebook, right? Oh, look, all our six children have just made single, singular cakes, and they're all dressed perfect, and every hair is in place, and, and, and it's to say I'm the perfect mom. Can you look at that without going, I bet there's something wrong in that picture right out of view, right? Or can you go, great, that's good for you. You see people on family vacations. You see people lose 60 pounds with this amazing weight loss thing. What is our first thought? Because it, it, it takes humility and it takes self-forgetfulness. And that's an upside-down view of the world's greatness, right? Understanding gospel greatness, I guess is one, say, one way to say it, or gospel greatness flipped. It leads to celebrating those who are doing better than us because it's not about us. Those who have more money, those who have a better job, those who have more hair, right? 
those who are better looking, those who have more education or seem to have it all together, those with a big family, those with a small family, they're not your competition. They have nothing to help you. You need to go to God for that. Otherwise, envy is going to eat you up, and it will lead to bitterness and a numb heart. So do you see the hope that Jesus is bringing here? <laughs> like, God, you're missing the point. You're missing the greatness altogether. Uh, you're, you're stuck in the world. You, you've been conformed to the world. Your mind needs to be transformed. It needs to be renewed right now. You've got to see. You've got to stop measuring yourself with the standards of the world because those standards, those metrics are broken. They're, they're, they broke. And so you remember the desire for, for, for greatness, this holy ambition that gets twisted into selfish ambition. Here's what James 3 says. Just listen. But if you have bitter jealousy, if you have selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast to be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And so we can find ourselves in a place where we're measuring ourselves against others. Those that are higher than us, those that are lower than us, and we've always, we're always measuring constantly where we are. And what we do is we miss the opportunity for joy in the moment. Verse 41, and we finish. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Even the humblest act of kindness, serving one another, even with it down to a giving a glass of water like we talked about from Matthew 25. That's something that the poorest among us can do. And it doesn't go unrewarded by God. There's reward. And God wants to reward us, even with a cup. This is uh, through the eternal words of a changed heart, a new perspective, joy and humility, freedom. I want you to see the freedom that, that can come from a, a, a viewpoint, a pers- Christian's perspective like this of gospel greatness. Here's Paul Miller. He says, while I was speaking at a camp for children with disabilities, one of the volunteer workers who felt, she felt falsely accused by a parent. After listening to her, I brightened up and I told her, I love this, now you can serve Jesus instead of the parents. Having been in similar circumstances, he says, I was genuinely excited for her. Nothing clears out self-righteousness better than serving someone who is critical of you. <laughs> right? If you can serve somebody who is critical of you, you're learning that. Because now you're not serving them. It was like me serving Miss Bessie. I was serving me. I wasn't serving her. And so when somebody's critical of us or we can't quite get it right and we continue to serve, it purifies our motivation and it reveals why we're really doing what we're doing. Is it for Jesus or is it for us? Do we have this sense of righteousness or that was coming from him and empowered by the Spirit or is it self-righteousness cloaked as righteousness? And so we want to serve Jesus. We, want, we do that when we take the lower seat, when we consider others better than ourselves, when we celebrate those who are successful and we're not threatened by that. That's a power that comes from within. So the gospel call this morning is not, I need to be more humble, I need to run to the first homeless person I see and give them money. That's not not what we're saying. That's wrong. It starts with a change in your heart to really understand why serving is great. 
It's not a change in your behavior until there's a change in your heart. And so the behavior flows from the change in your heart. We always say, uh, one way or the other, religion, the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says that I obey and then I'm accepted by God. The gospel says because I'm accepted by God, I obey. They're totally different, all right? One leads to burned out anger and eventual bitterness and numbness toward the church and toward God. The other leads to serving Jesus and getting joy in the midst of it. That's, that's, the, that's the difference. So it's not a call to try harder and to be more humble. That's not, that's not what, what we're saying. We're saying, look at the one who's already done that, who's exemplified that, who laid his life down, who in verse 30 and 31, this morning talks about laying his life down. That we're called to do the same. We can't, but he can, and he will in us and through us if we just submit, we surrender. We say, help me, Jesus. We confess, I need a heart like you. I need the Holy Spirit to tra- transform me. I need this to be a real thing and not just something I'm doing on the outside. So what we, we see is that the road to true greatness that we've always desired, that you desired even as a little kid to be great, be like Spider-Man. In fact, this is that road, and it's probably most like it was when you were a little kid. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move, and that you would pour out yourself on us, on your people. We need you. We cannot make our hearts come alive. We cannot make our hearts want to serve. We can do the serving, and we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're doing that because we're new creations. But, Father, we can do that to serve ourselves. And so we pray, would you shine your light? Would you reveal, would you expose what's in our hearts that we might turn that over to you, put it at the foot of the cross, understand that you have done everything and that serving others to be great in the kingdom comes from walking closely with you, from abiding in Jesus. Would you let us do that? Would you let us worship as we respond to you and how you came? You should not have. You should have come as a conquering king that just smote sin everywhere it was, slain us all, declared your righteousness, your holy, that you held up your scepter, and you, you declare that all things are mine without exception. It's what you should have done, and yet you come, and the infinite becomes infant, and you lay down your life, and you die for your creation that killed you. And so would you move among us? We need you to bring, breathe life from death, to bring light out of darkness, to bring order out of chaos, that we might serve you and worship you with glad and full and satisfied hearts because that's the way that we're made. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.